Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another awesome episode of Biff Bites. I'm your host, Jerry Mee, joined as always by my two awesome co-hosts, Mike Long and Brendan Flaherty. How's it going, guys? Everything's doing yeah. good. How you doing? Doing well. Doing well. We're uh, getting into crunch time for the March exam. Yes, I can tell by all the capstones. Yeah, Brendan's going crazy great in capstones. I know what a couple hundred this week. <laughs> it's it's been it's been uh, a, a full time job for sure. Yeah, definitely nonstop grading. All the people getting in their capstones last minute before the exam. And yeah, Mike, we're about uh, a month out from the start of the exam. Yeah, March 11th? Yeah. What, what, what are the actual dates? Uh, yes, I do believe March 11th is the first day yep. of the exam. Getting into crunch time, we've actually gotten a uh, bunch of feedback about what people really like. And considering that it is so close to the exam, it, this topic seems really timely. But uh, for this episode, we decided to do a breakdown and do just a bunch of exam questions uh, and talk about how each of us approach these questions to come up with the right answer, because uh, that seems to be something very valuable that our students uh, like to hear about is just our thought process about how we approach these questions and how you know they can mimic those uh, those uh, strategies to also have a success with answering the questions. Yeah, we don't always get them all right, but we we love our process. Right. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Process is more important than outcome for sure. It's, I want to look good That's missing right. this one. That sounds like my well, golf let's game. Look good. Yeah. yeah. Let, <laughs> let's let's look good while hitting this time. Right. So <laughs> but uh, so we chose uh, kind of six very typical questions, uh, one from each of the six main topics, uh, you know, sections of the exam. To kind of give you guys an idea of the types of questions that you'll see and the you know ways that you can break these questions down. So this entire episode is going to be question of the month. And with that, should we get right into it, gentlemen? Yeah, yeah. We've we want we've got quite a few questions here. At least one from each area. So yeah, let's do Definitely. it. Um, so starting it off nice and easy. First topic is general principles. What do you guys know offhand? What percentage general principles usually makes up of the exam? Uh, I want to say it's 18, 18. I can actually pull it up here. Um, yeah, they've carved out education, right. uh, from that, what used to be in principles. It might be, I don't know, 12 and then maybe six yeah. with education for a yeah, total of eight. Somewhere yeah, in that, that sounds about right. So general principles up first. Now, personal financial planning consists of development and implementation of A, comprehensive personal objectives, B, coordinated comprehensive strategies, C, asset allocation techniques, or D, cash flow analysis. So this is a very typical question that you could get on the exam. I feel this uh, is something you're almost going to guarantee to see at least some variation of this. Yeah, and and while while we're beginning, I think the one thing that people need to keep in mind, and I, I say this so so people who have listened to the virtual sessions that I do will hear this, uh, that the CFP exam is very much a reading comprehension test. It's it's much more a reading comprehension test than a math test. So it's important to uh, read what the uh, the questions are. 
identify what is is being asked of you and then uh, choose the best answer from the choices provided. RTFQ. RTFQ, RTFA, right? Read the full. Uh, you can use whatever F word you want, but read the full questions. Oh, okay. <laughs> and that's not the F word I used when I took the test. But yeah, RTFQ and RTFA <laughs> are my favorite acronyms for it. Definitely, yeah. Read the full question, read the full answers. And especially with this question, read the full answers because just from a cursory glance, this isn't a particularly difficult question topic-wise. What's difficult about it is all of these answers seem right. Yeah, they could all they, they absolutely could all be correct answers. So when we say that so personal financial planning consists of development and implementation, comprehensive personal objectives, absolutely that's a part of the process. Uh, coordinated comprehensive strategies, clearly that would be an answer. Uh, asset allocation techniques. I would say that a majority of the people that you deal with on a financial planning standpoint, you're going to at least comment on uh, the asset allocation that they currently have relative to you know where they should be with their risk tolerance and, and goals. Uh, and then finally, cash flow analysis, of course, will be part of the financial planning uh, process. So they're all correct answers. Uh, however, B coordinated comprehensive strategies uh, is the best answer. And if you take a look at the choices that you have, uh, the other three kind of roll up into that that larger uh, answer, the coordinated comprehensive strategy. So from my perspective, B um, would be the best answer here. Right. So basically, you're looking for the answer that encompasses the whole. You know, these other answers, while yes, fall under the categories, they're a bit too specific to be the best answer. Yeah, and I, I think if it, when you're when you're going through a test, if if you see you know clearly more than one answer is correct, um, then that should if you see two things that absolutely could be correct, for example, it, it should clue you in that maybe you need to read the question a little bit more closely, um, because obviously two you, you can't you can't pick A or B and have them both be right, right? So so if they're both right and all of the above isn't one of your choices, then clearly neither of them are right, uh, and you need to find something better, right? What, I, what I've kind of noticed in this vein as a, as a rule of thumb is when a question is asking you to give advice, you know, what's the best course of action for a client to take, you know, things in that vein, um, specific tends to be best. The best answer is generally the answer that gives the clearest, um, you know, most specific advice rather than a general save more. Like, Open up an IRA and start making contributions is a better answer than save more right. for advice yep. advice style questions. Yep. For like definition style questions like these, you're looking more for answers that uh, kind of encompass the whole, you know, hit as many of the points as possible um, instead of the more specific answers that are only pieces of the whole. That's correct. And, and I think that people could look at this question and say that it's vague or maybe ambiguous and and that's really not the case the number one the number one complaint about the CFP exam all my questions were subjective and it's especially people who have taken finra uh, exams the series 7 or the series 66 where those tend to be very black and white um, and and I would say that the CFP questions uh, kind of live in the gray area uh, and, and it's much more of an interpretive exam um, and, and so while there is some subjectivity to this to this question um, you know the, the, for, at least from my perspective there's clearly uh, a, 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 an answer that's correct yeah I think there's always something that disqualifies one of the two remaining answers most of us felt it was pretty easy to go from four choices down to two and then it was really hard to pick between the two but i always think there's something that tips the scale 
in there. And I look at this question and just think, well, those other three kind of fold into choice B, into a coordinated comprehensive strategy. Um, but this is also, this is one of those questions, I think, guys, where any of us and our students would look at this and say, well, this is too easy. Uh, but there are numerous questions on the exam that are like this or will end with what does the planner do next? And you have to tap into, remember we're in exam land here. So we're in CFP land and we have to pay attention and study their descriptions of the steps in the financial planning process. There are seven steps and we need to connect with what their perception is of what happens in each of those steps to be able to handle this. What do you do next? And there's a wonderful tool out there. If you haven't seen it, it's the, uh, the, the roadmap to the uh, code of ethics and standards yep. of conduct. If you don't have that, let us know. We'll help you get it. But you really need to study that because this seems so basic, especially for someone who's been in the business a while. It really isn't that basic in CFP land. Right. Going back to uh, the reading comprehension part we mentioned before and the narrowing it down to two choices, getting that best answer from the two choices is really where the reading comprehension comes in. So for me personally, when I looked at the question, um, you know, I had eliminated C and D pretty quickly, asset allocation techniques and cash flow analysis. Those two are just a bit too specific. Um, you know, it, it's not a really full picture there. Um, and then I narrowed it down to A and B comprehensive personal objectives, and then coordinated comprehensive strategies. Those two, I feel, are, are really tricky for a lot of people to choose the right answer between. And kind of the tipping point for me that, that uh, led me to be is the fact it's just a single word difference between the two of them. Uh, objectives versus strategies. Yeah, and and the problem the the problem is the allure of the of the modifier there. The comprehensive and coordinated. This both sound like such CFP words, uh, and especially comprehensive. You know, comprehensive is just like I feel like I'm in the warm pool of CFP world. Um, <laughs> but you know, when you take a look at you know, ultimately to Jerry's point, objectives—that's certainly part of it. But the objectives are, are really what you're trying to meet, and the planning comes into how to meet them. So it, it only gets you halfway home. And, and so, B, um, the strategies, coming up with the strategies to meet the objectives, is really what we're doing. Yeah, goals versus actions. Yeah, y you can you can implement strategies. You can't really implement objectives. Like my objective is to do well on this test. Right. Well, what strategy am I going to have in order to do well on it? Good yep. point. Yeah. Yeah. And and so you know, and part of it is is kind of nailing, making sure that those objectives are, are realistic. Uh, and and that's a lot of clients come in and, and they they tend to be um, a, a little ambitious in what their goals uh, are relative to to some of the factors that are playing into to um, their current state. Uh, and, and so really making sure that those objectives are realistic uh, is is part of the the initial process as well. Yeah, and that's that's spelled out in the standards as well, that there is an obligation really to um, notify the client if there are unrealistic expectations or assumptions in there. I wanted to um, just flag one other thing about the steps in, in the process compared to the last standards. The board has actually put an additional step in there. Step number three is analyzing the client's current course of action and potential alternative courses of action. This is new. So if I'm a test writer, 
I'm, I'm going to say, well, I'm going to test that new thing. Do we have advisors out there that are willing to say to the client, you're on track. Let's just keep everything just as it is. Cause my, my general feeling is they don't think we're, we're capable of doing that, but well, right. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone, everyone's churning. Accounts. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. The, um, and that's a, that's a very valid point, you know, and I think that, that, um, when you do have these big, robust changes, because, again, these practice standards have, have certainly gathered a lot of attention. Um, it was a big push out for the, the, the CFP board, and, and I agree, Mike. I, I think that they will look to focus uh, more of the test on it than maybe they have historically. And I would also encourage, if you haven't recently, they've also just done a big overhaul of the website. So if you haven't been to the CFP board's website recently, um, I, I would definitely go and check it out. Um, it's, it's, it's much more user-friendly. There's a lot of great information now contained there as well. Easier to find. All right, guys. Up next for topics, we have insurance, which I will be the first to admit. I think insurance is probably my weakest area as far as all the topics go. Everyone has that one topic that just is a pain for them. Usually you don't hear it's insurance, though. Yeah, I don't know what it is. Usually it's a state or retirement. Yeah, I just feel insurance is the one that's just mostly memorization-based, whereas yeah, I can use logic to find the answers of other questions, but insurance, it's like you either know it or don't know it. Yeah, I remember when I went through the uh, the insurance portion of my training for the CFP, uh, I, I would scare the hell out of me because it felt like I was vastly underinsured <laughs> and I was about to ruin my life. So it's just, right. yeah. And everyone else that knew me, they're, they're all ruined too. So let's take a look at Vicky here. Vicky works for XYZ Corporation. The corporation pays her individual disability insurance premium. Which of the following is true? A, the benefits are tax-free to Vicky. B, the benefits are taxable to Vicky. C, the corporation cannot deduct the premium. D, the premiums paid by the corporation are not a tax consequence to Vicky. So what's the topic being tested here? Well, I think it's twofold, right? So so certainly the uh, the portion of disability insurance, but it's also employee benefits and, and to an extent taxation as well. Yeah. Right. So this too. is this is a wide net that, that's been cast mm-hmm. here. That's what makes it such a great exam question. Yep. And 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 tax is one of those general topics that threads its way through basically all of the other courses, if you really think about it. And this is so typical of the exam. I would be for you test takers coming up, I would be shocked if you did not have one or more questions of this nature. And and looking extremely similar. Yes, yes. Right. Really, there's there's two questions being posed right here. And I guess you can use logic a little bit for process of elimination to see where the answers are leading you. But it seems the two things they really want us to keep in mind with this question is who's getting taxed and who can take tax deductions when companies pay for insurance premiums. Right. And if you go at it with that mentality, you can you can eliminate the fourth option, which is the premiums paid by the corporation are not a tax consequence to Vicky. That's just kind of an outlier. It doesn't really add up with the rest of the question. Um, but then when you're left with the, the previous three about the benefits being taxable or tax-free and whether or not the corporation can deduct the premium, those all, again, are relatively attractive options. Uh, with this 
topic as far as, you know, premiums and benefits and taxation goes, there tends to be a bit of a, a cause and effect uh, style with it. And the way I kind of keep it straight in my mind is thinking of, you know, who is paying the premiums and who's getting the benefits. And if those people are different, what are the tax consequences involved with it? Sure. Yep. Um, so in this case, so the company is paying uh, Vicky's premiums, right? The corporation pays her individual disability insurance premium. Yep. Um, when, when I say that, that's that's definitely a huge benefit to Vicky. Like, the company is basically footing the bill for uh, for Vicky's insurance. And generally, when a company foots the bill for something, the IRS tends to think of that as, you know, a form of income for most people. Mm-hmm. If it's income for Vicky, if you think about it in that regard, uh, and the benefits are the result of it, you know, what does that do for taxation for Vicky? For her are going to be taxable because she hasn't paid any premium with after-tax dollars. It- they just took care of it. That's correct, yeah. Yeah, so that, that leads us to option B, the benefits are taxable to Vicky. And if you think about it that way, that makes sense because this company is paying these premiums for her. It's a form of income. Um, the IRS is going to want to tax that uh, of Vicky for you know getting that income paid to her. It's just instead of taxing the premium, um, they're going to end up taxing the end result, which is the benefits. Which could be, you know, down the road, a more significant, you know, if something ever happens to Vicky, that could be a, a, a greater tax consequence than the benefit that she's receiving from not having to pay any taxes on the premiums that are being paid. Yeah. So like XYZ, instead of paying her disability premiums, XYZ should just could just say, you know what, we're not going to have any disability insurance, but we're going to give you a bonus each year so you can pay for your own disability insurance. Then Vicky would be taxable right then and there uh, because it's just straight up income at that point. But the benefits that Vicky eventually gets from disability wouldn't be taxable because she paid the tax up front. That's correct. Um, it's yeah. It's kind of like uh, pay now or pay later. But if you pay later, you're probably going to end up paying more. Yeah, because yeah, with- certainly the annual premium uh, is going to be less than 12 months of benefits. If well, you'd hope it depends how old how old Vicky is. Like if Vicky's well into her hundreds, maybe not. Right? Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, and and the other thing to consider is is within the questions current form, where she's not paying taxes on the premium, therefore the the disability benefits are taxable. Uh, as a planner, you need to make sure that the after tax impact of those disability benefits are, are going to satisfy what she needs it to do. Because uh, if not, she may want to pick up her own individual. Um, disability policy on top of the group policy that's being provided from her firm. Yeah. Well, and that's another reason why I would want the bonus um, and buy my own because then it's completely portable. Yeah, that's um, that's a know, great should point, I, too. Should I leave? Yep. You know, you know I want to mention something else, too, for um, exam takers. Um, sometimes the way this gets tested, this very concept is they'll have numbers attached to these benefits. And quite often that question will not only be some of it corporately paid for, but the employee insured also has a private policy for which she pays premiums with after-tax dollars. Yep. And then the question, and it'll give you the elimination periods. One might be 30 days, one might be 90. Uh, And then the question is, what is the after-tax amount of benefits uh, after, you know, 12 months? Yep. 
and you have to do some quick math on the part that's taxable and the part that's not. Just be prepared for that type of question as well. But it's really the same concept. And, and don't, you know, if you do see something like that, don't get wound around the spoke on it. They give you scrap paper for a reason. So just write it down, keep it organized. Um, don't try to do the math in your head. Let's kind of take it also from the opposite point of view to kind of drive the points home for people. Um, let's say that Vicky is paying her own disability insurance premiums. Um, what does that do to the to the taxation of the benefits? At that point, the benefits would become tax-free. Yep, so Vicky would get those benefits tax-free, yep. and that's because Vicky is paying for those uh, premiums um, up front with after-tax dollars. Um, so she's basically paying those taxes up front. Now, what about deducting the premiums? Since Vicky's paying the premiums, can she also deduct the premiums? No, no, never. Right, exactly. That's where uh, it's different between the company paying for it and Vicky paying for it. The company can deduct the premiums, but Vicky cannot. Now, you can have, in group benefits, you could have uh, group disability, and uh, the individual uh, is paying some or, or, or all of that premium um, on a pretext basis yep. uh, through payroll mm-hmm. deduction. But then those benefits, again, they're going to be taxable. Taxable, yep. Yep. So really, I feel like the linchpin with these types of questions is when are taxes being paid and who's paying them? And that's really going to affect what the outcome is. Yeah, and the the inverse relationship, like you said, the seesaw. Uh, you, you know, I, I could see a student drawing the seesaw on something like yep. this and separating the corporately paid from the individually after tax paid and uh, go from there. And that take, like you said, Brendan, the scratch paper's there. Just do it. it take you 10 seconds. Yeah, and you, I think yeah. people, they, they feel like it's remedial. But I you want to, again, as, as I've said a hundred times, the, the goal is to is to mitigate the stupid mistakes, you know, things you know and, and just make a dumb mistake on on the test. You want to avoid as many of those as you possibly can. And using the scrap paper and keeping yourself organized is, is really one of the best ways to do that. All right. Up next, we have Brendan's favorite category, investments. And Brendan, you also found one of your favorite questions for us today. Yeah. So those those people that have gone through the investments virtual classes will be familiar with this question. But it's a great question. It's it's very um, representative of something that you'd see on the exam. And again, it's an options question. I think a lot of people would say, oh, this is a math question. But there's really no math at all involved. Um, it's it's a reading comprehension question. Yeah, just because a question has numbers doesn't mean you need to break out the calculator. Right. Um, so getting into it, Robert, your client, has a large paper profit in his Englewood Corporation shares, uh, currently at $35 a share. Uh, he is happy with the stock, but realizes that a good thing cannot go on forever. If he is willing to sell at $40 a share, what strategy could you recommend to him? A, buy a $40 call. B, sell a $40 call. C, buy a $40 put. Or D, sell a $40 put. So this question, I, I think, it requires that you a couple of things. Um, a, you, you, the, all of these answers seem relatively reasonable. 
uh, and, and seem like they could be good options for, for, for the client. Uh, but you need to, you need to not create a story with this question. Um, and so a couple of the parts that I, I think this question leads you down that path, um, is that, you know, he realizes that a good thing cannot go on forever. Uh, although anybody that has had a client who has done really well in a stock, they tend to marry that stock and they do think that a good thing will go on forever. Um, and so it's, this is where you have to come in to really try and, and, and focus them on the risk of the downside as opposed to the risk of missing further upside. Um, and so the key word here is if he is willing, so he's willing to sell, uh, to sell the stock at 40, what strategy would you recommend to him? So when we take a look at this, I, I think our initial thought is going to be, well, we got we got to lay some put strategy on this because we're worried about that, that large paper profit and we want to protect that but the reality is this question doesn't really say anything at all about him being nervous about the near-term price of the stock it's just he realizes it can't go on forever and he's willing to sell it at 40 so in reality the put strategies which protect you on the downside probably aren't the most appropriate so uh specifically specifically buying the put strategies too yeah that, that, that's correct yeah. so so buying the put strategy um and you know i don't know as though um, you wouldn't want to necessarily sell. I mean, we can go through each of these answers uh, individually. So buying $40 call options, if I, if I buy the $40 call option, that gives me the right as the buyer to purchase shares at $40 per share. Well, that's I don't want to do that, so we can go ahead and just eliminate that answer. Yeah, he wants to get rid of the stock. Yeah, not, not get, get, more not get stock. additional yeah, stock at a higher price than what he paid it's for. At, it's at 35 Right. Just buy he it from the market. wouldn't pay a premium to buy it, it at 40 Right, exactly. Uh, B, sell $40 call options. So that gives us the um, – um, we, we'd sell the shares – I'm sorry. We'd sell the, the right to purchase shares from us uh, in the future. So that's definitely an option. Uh, buy $40 put options. So when we take a look at that, if I'm buying $40 put options, I'm buying the right to sell shares at $40 per share. Well, the stock, as the question saying, is only 35 So those options are going to be very expensive. They're $5 in the money. So those also aren't necessarily um, the, the going to be the right strategy. Uh, and then it, go, go ahead. It, it answered the buy $40 put. It answers only half the question for me. It's like, yes, he can sell those shares at $40, but – He's not going to pocket forty dollars. He's probably going to pay, you know, anywhere from five to ten dollars in call in premium right. uh, on that option. So really, he's only going to be walking away with about thirty, uh, which means, you know, why would he do that when he could just sell them on the open market right now for thirty? Thirty-five. That's exactly right. And, and then yeah, uh, and Brendan made a good point earlier about particularly in this question. We see nothing that he's worried yeah. about protecting his his gains at this point. Yeah, I mean, he, he feels very optimistic, but he realizes, again, it's not reality, realizes that the good thing can't go on forever, right? And, and so, um, you know, to me, it, it just seems like the, the, the appropriate thing here for the, to do as the, as the planner uh, is to encourage Bob or Robert to, to sell $40 call options. Um, so, you know, the key issue is his willingness to sell the stock at 40. Um, doing this would be considered selling covered calls. So, you know, we're not we're not having any naked calls here. So we'd sell covered calls uh, and that will generate some income. So, you know, it gives him some additional money 
whatever premium he gets for this can be added to the to the price that he sells the stock for. Uh, and, um, you know, potentially the stock gets called away from him $5 or, or 12 or so percent above where it currently is. So from my perspective, B, selling $40 call options would be the appropriate strategy here. Just to break it down also with D, sell $40 puts. Oh, yeah, sorry. Uh, yep. That would be that would be pretty much the same as buying $40 calls. I mean, you know, he doesn't want to sell someone the right to give him more shares at $40. Like, if the stock goes down, that's actually counterintuitive of what he, he's actually planning on doing. Yeah, like, the, if, to that point, I mean, A, A and D are really so, – so to Mike's point earlier, if, if, if you are going through this test and you're able to narrow down your choices to get you to a 50-50 scenario – that that's great work, right? And and so the the one that what you do here is you, you'd look to eliminate two of those options, and A and D are absolutely uh, the ones that you could eliminate right off the bat. Um, and then when we say you know buying forty dollar put options, even not even considering the the uh, fact that those options would be well into the money and therefore relatively expensive, um, we, we just have to go back to the question. So if it said you know buy thirty five dollar put options, that would be a much more attractive uh, option. Um, but it still isn't getting at, you know, the question doesn't say he's worried about the downside. The question says uh, that he realizes a good thing can't go on forever. Uh, so therefore, it's it's more of a bias to sell the stock higher as opposed to protecting the downside. Yeah, for this for this type of question, I think it's the perfect question to draw your options box on. Um which is a great little thing to do as just like part of your memory dump when you get your scrap piece of paper when you first sit down for the exam, draw an options box if you have trouble with options. And what I mean by that is it's just a a four uh, a two by two table with calls and puts for the two rows, and then buy and sell for the two columns. And the way they interact, you just draw your little bullish bearish arrows going up and down. Uh, to help remind you of, you know, what each strategy is for. You know, if I am buying calls, I'm bullish. If I'm selling puts, uh, I'm also bullish. And if you can get that uh, down on a piece of paper, and if you're a very visual person like I am, that can go a long way with helping you keep these option strategies straight uh, because it's easier to visualize that way. Yeah, everybody. Yeah, a good point. Yeah, and everybody has a system to kind of keep options straight, and there's a, a number of them out there. And you know, w w once you get it to click, it, it it pretty much is clicked for good. Um, and, and you want to just you don't need to try a different strategy. If if you understand options yeah. with whatever strategy you're doing, that may be the box, it may not be. Uh, but I agree, you know, get some system. And and, and Jerry's right, the box is a good system. Um, and again, it's it's the scrap paper, staying organized on your questions, and not letting your mind kind of get wound around the spoke. Yeah, we should do some mini bites uh, on on this topic. Yeah, I've got that on my list you know, for just sure. Just those quick yep. memory things. And then yep. I'm always looking at these things too, like what simple changes could the board make in a question like this to test some other element? And in looking at this, I was thinking maybe this question would be what's the intrinsic value? Right. Uh uh, of this option, or they might give you the what the option premium is and ask what the time value of this yeah. option is without changing really much else in, in the question. 
Yeah. There's also little word variations with options questions they can throw in there that'll lead that that'll kind of give you hints. Like for the same question, it, w- it would be the same answer, but something that would just reinforce the right answer for me is if they added a sentence of, uh, you know, Robert's also looking for income. So when it's talking about options and it's saying the client is looking for income, selling uh, calls and puts are a lot more attractive at that point because when you're selling calls and puts, you're collecting that income from the premium that you're writing. That's, that's yeah, and correct. In, in this particular question, that premium would be 100% time value, right? Am I thinking about that right? Because it has yeah. zero intrinsic value now because it's not in the money. So whatever it whatever it could get for it would really be all be time the premium. time value. Yep. And and it's yeah. it's a good a good place to remind everybody that intrinsic value can never ever ever be less than 0. You will get I guarantee you a question on the CFP exam where you have to calculate intrinsic value on on a, an option contract that's out of the money and one of your choices is going to be a negative number for the exact amount of, of the uh, contract being out of the money, and that's not correct. The lowest yep. value that an intrinsic value can have is zero. You can you can do all the math, and the theoretical value could be a negative, yep. but in real world, as far as the answer goes, it's always going to be zero. Or positive. Or, yes, or positive, yes, yep. in terms of negative numbers. But yes, it can always be positive. That's a great exam point you guys just shared. All right, guys, we have everyone's favorite subject, taxes. Especially this time of the year. (laughs) I know, right? Uh, So tax generally tends for most people to be the most difficult of the uh, topics covered in the CFP exam, unless uh, our lucky CPA friends who are sitting for the exam as well. They tend to love tax, but unless you're in that boat, uh, tax generally tends to be the most difficult section for a lot of people. Uh, so I think we got a pretty good uh, question here to exemplify, you know, something that you can see on the exam and why it's not that scary. Easy for you to say. Fire right. away. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so Rudy rents his beachfront home out to his frat brothers every spring for 14 days. Uh, he charges them $4,000 to cover damages. What is Rudy's tax consequences? A, Rudy can write off the repairs against his income. B, Rudy does not have to report the income. C, the repairs are deductible, but Rudy cannot show a loss. Or D, in addition to deducting repairs, Rudy can deduct an allocated portion of real estate taxes, depreciation, and other expenses. Um, This one is just really, you know, how well do you know the tax code? Yeah, this would, is a tough one. Yeah. <laughs> it is a tough one, and you know, again, as I as I said before, with the uh, re- renting your your house out for two weeks to your frat brothers, you, I would take a more than a four thousand dollars security deposit for sure. <laughs> yeah, the answer choice should be Rudy rebuilds the home the yeah. next month. Yeah, <laughs> after the fire, after the embers cool off. <laughs> Oh, man. So for the question like this, I think it it serves well to just kind of go down the list and and just X off the questions that we know are are completely wrong. Um, So the first one that seems really off to me is D. In addition to deducting repairs, Rudy can deduct an allocated portion of real estate taxes, depreciation and other expenses. 
Like an answer like that just screams to me, uh, CFP board question writer, just throwing buzzwords into an answer, hoping you'll choose it because it looks the most impressive. Yeah, some some uh, strategies, some testing. You know, every, every standardized test has has just strategies that go along with it, and one of those theories uh, is odd man out. So if you take a look at the first three answers, they're very short and succinct. Uh, and then the fourth choice goes on and on and on. That's the odd man out and probably is not a correct answer. Well, and that's what makes this so uh, this topic so difficult because D would actually be correct, I believe, if it were categorized as mixed-use property. Right. Um, I could never have remembered all three of them, from per- personal use to mostly rental to mixed-use Um but I would I would go into this thinking uh, how many of them can I remember? But that's that's where D would be correct though mixed use, mm-hmm. and mixed use being you know Rudy's doing this as like an income play like Rudy's making money off of this beachfront home compared to this scenario in which you know he's really just letting his his fraternity brother uh, brothers use it and he just wants to collect enough to cover good damages yeah and mixed he would be renting it way more than than 14 days uh, a year but also using it um, but again that's just little snippets you remember with, with this this particular topic speak for yourself <laughs> I don't remember yeah. anything. <laughs> um so what about c the repairs are deductible but rudy cannot show a loss what do you guys think about that answer well i think that's that's in the same category i believe as d would be yeah 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 Um, also just like it doesn't necessarily answer the question so much right like I, i get it's still talking about taxes um but like re- deducting the repairs on the house doesn't necessarily have anything to do with him renting it out. You know, deducting repairs uh, would just go in line with, you know, whether he's doing it from a business venture or not. Yeah, because certainly he couldn't do that for his personal residence. Right. You know, um, you know, maybe some things contribute to basis, but he's not going to take a tax deduction for fixing the leak in his roof. Right. Um, and that also is where A, Rudy can write off the repairs against his income. Like, I feel A and C are, are very similar types of uh, answers yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. Um, which leaves us to the last and correct answer. Rudy does not have to report income, which at face value, I w- that tends to be an answer uh, that almost is always wrong. You know, whenever it says, oh, you don't have to pay taxes, just ignore it. Like anytime I see that, that always is a big red flag for me on questions, because usually that is not the answer. Usually you're always going to get a tax bill of some sort. That's a really good point. Yeah, I think instinctively you say, oh, well, the IRS would never allow that. That's right. income. Right. <laughs> right. That's $4,000. And that's that's when kind of logic can get you in trouble versus your memorization. You know, if you just remember that as long as you don't rent it out for 15 days uh, or more, obviously, um, you know, you don't have to declare any income you get from from renting out a property. As long as you stay under that 15 day mark, you know, that's the crossover point. If you rent it out longer than 15 days, now all of a sudden you have to start reporting that income. Yeah, and there you're starting to section off. You, you know, if this is one of those topics that just makes your head spin, um, 
just pick that one and remember that. And then you got a shot. You know, maybe there's three or four pool questions that get into rental property. And you just hope that you get that one that you did make a right. make a real effort to, to, to memorize and just let the other ones go instead of all the little details and everything. Yeah, and if anyone you know, has the the misnomer that they're going to get a perfect score in this test, they can just go ahead and let go of that right now. So you're, yeah. <laughs> you're gonna you're definitely gonna get questions wrong, and if these are the ones you get wrong, so be it. Right. And, and what know, was it, the key there? Fourteen days. Maybe you said that. Um, yeah, yeah. Four, fourteen days. It's no. fifteen days is the cutoff. Once you rent it for fifteen days or more, um, all of a sudden it becomes taxable. Um, really, that point is just something that you have to memorize and. Kind of the point of why we chose this question is, you know, try not to overcomplicate the question. You know, yes, we've said before, and it's usually a, a good strategy to use logic to try and find the answer, but don't use logic to talk yourself out of the right answer. Yeah, don't be an author, right? Don't don't start creating a story around the question. Yeah, just just you know, again, go for it. Learn that one thing. Hope that's what you see, and move on. Yep. There's something I want to mention. Um, generally related to this topic to have exam takers go go take a look at because it frequently shows up and that is the casual rental property uh, investor and uh, you know that's passive uh, activity and usually passive losses can only be offset can only offset passive income except for that non-professional casual rental property owner who could take up to $25,000 loss against other income. And that so that would be in the same section as, as this type of content would be. But that's a very common exam question. It starts to phase out over 100000 of AGI, but you possibly could take a $25,000 deduction against uh, other income, portfolio mm-hmm. income, uh, ordinary income. So... Anyway, has nothing to do with this question, except you might see the content in the same area. Well, you know, Mike, but I don't know if it doesn't really have anything common. to do with this question, because if you really want to generate a $25,000 loss, just go ahead and rent your house to a frat, and you probably will get <laughs> <Yeah>. it. <laughs> <laughs> to be continued yeah. is the question. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> if you're, look, you're looking for a tax scheme, rent your house to a frat. Yeah, but make see sure what happens. At, least, at yeah. least 15 days. <laughs> Was I so, the only one that instantly thought of Animal House? When yeah, you right. Yeah. No, that's, uh, hopefully not. Hopefully not. <laughs> right. that, that's the, uh, yep. you know, and again, as, as we were talking about before, it's, it's, it also can maybe lend to uh, the thought that this, in, in varying this question a little bit, it's, it's going to be on the homeowner's policy. If they just have a traditional homeowner's policy uh, and they're renting this, this property for, for income, it may not be covered if there's, if there's a loss. Yeah, and that, that goes back over into insurance. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if we start seeing these types of questions on the exam, but um, as far as like homeowner's policy and also auto insurance with the rise of things like Airbnb and Uber and Lyft, you know, these sharing uh, ride share services, host share services, um, it definitely caused some sticky situations for insurance coverage. All right. Up next, we have retirement. And Mike, you got us a nice uh, retirement question here having to do with everyone's favorite uh, Social Security benefits and how they're affected with, uh, you know, other sources of income. So I'm just going to get right into it here. Uh, Renee, a single taxpayer. 
retired at age 62 and is receiving Social Security retirement benefits. And she continues to work part-time. She also receives municipal bond interest and qualified dividends to supplement her income. Which of the following statements is not correct regarding the calculation of Renee's uh, provisional income to determine how much, if any, of her Social Security benefits will subject be subject to income tax. So that's a mouthful. So what? before we even get... Right. It's, like, it's, yeah. like, it's like Homer wrote that question. It's like the Odyssey. Yeah. So that, before, we, before we even get into the answers, let's break that down, because that's kind of typical of a, of a type of answer uh, question you would get on the exam, where like just breaking down the question and asking yourself, what are they actually asking is going to go miles for you as far as uh, coming up with the right answer. Yeah. And I'm guilty. I wrote this. (laughs) 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 I apologize. Um, Yeah. A lot of, a lot of things going on and there's some words in here. We'd have to know uh, particularly provisional income. And and so this takes you down a lot of paths because we see that 62 and say, Oh, wait a minute. That's not the full retirement age. There's going to be some reduction in benefits. Well, it's not testing that uh, at all. When you get Mm -hmm. down to the end, that last sentence, uh, it's about calculating her provisional income it's not even asking what's the most, and this is an exam question, actually, what's the most amount of the Social Security income that would be includable, would be subject to tax? That's 85%. Right. Uh, or, or it could be 50%. Um, so you have to isolate that noise out of the question stem. This is only a three-question uh, or a three-sentence question, but there's a lot of noise happening in there. So we're looking at, you know, the piece we would have needed to have studied is provisional income. And um, so that would start, the easiest thing to pick out uh, if they gave us numbers would be, well, she's got some part-time, part-time income. That's going to be part of provisional income. And um, qualified dividends, while uh, taxed perhaps at a lower rate, that's going to that's gonna roll up in here. Um but municipal bond interest is tax-free, and then 100% of her Social Security benefit. Most are going to be inclined to say that the municipal bond interest would not be, because mm-hmm. tax-free. Right. In this calculation, it's pulled back in. Uh, right. And there's a, there's a short list of other things, like uh, private activity bonds. But what you would see, if, if this is your question, it'll, there'll be municipal bond interest in there. Um, and, and what's incorrect is 100% of her Social Security benefit is included in provisional income. It's 50%. So you'd, t- you'd take those other three items plus half of her Social Security benefit, and that's your provisional income. So that's, that's really what the question's testing on um, is, you know, do you know what is included in provisional income? It really just comes down to studying that, that subtopic and, you know, being comfortable with what makes up the calculations of it. Yeah. And I I don't know if it'll be that complex and I don't think you'll, you'll actually have to calculate, uh, the tax, um, with those different layers and thresholds. I had a question on my exam back when we took it on chalkboards. Right. um, (laughs) Yeah. At (laughs) It was just, what was that upper percentage? And the answer was 85%. Yep. Uh, so hopefully you'll get that one rather than something that you have to link a little harder on. But Social Security is is really, really important for the national exam. 
And it's really and important for practice too. I mean, I, I, I frequently um, or regularly am, am dealing with Social Security benefits and strategies around it in, in my in my practice. So uh, there's just so many pool questions on this right. one. It, it's just you got to know that if you take it early, uh, before your full retirement age, you're going to have reductions. Have to know those brackets. You know, it, could it be fifty percent uh, subject to tax or eighty five percent? Uh, you have to know that uh, there's delayed credits if they take it after their full retirement age. You need to know that they need 40 credits to be fully insured. I mean, there's just a ton of pool questions here. So don't treat Social Security lightly. And going back to the RTFQ, the I, I find that uh, th- there's a lot of people that get hamstrung on these. Which of these is not correct? Um, that, that completely alters the question. Yeah, that for whatever reason, it just flips a switch in a lot of people's brains or they just they just can't think about it in double negative terms. Right. And it's hard. Like, it's hard wrapping your head around that. You know, just you got to try and keep it straight. Yeah, that, again, takes a little practice, but that's why you do practice questions running up to the exam you can you can sharpen all of these skills that's correct right and i think we already spoiled the correct answer on this one but let's uh run through the uh the answer options here um so a part-time earned income is included in provisional income so that's true like right we talked about that part-time earned income that gets that's gets factored in that's just a true statement so that's that's uh not the not it's true, but not the correct answer because we're looking for the things that are not true. Um, B one hundred percent of her social security benefit is included in provisional income. Um, we've already discussed it, so we know that that is the correct answer to choose because it's not one hundred percent; it's fifty percent would get included in her provisional income. C municipal bond interest is included in provisional income. Um, that would be true. And then D, qualified dividends are included in provisional income, which is also true. Yeah, hey, I got so excited I jumped ahead, didn't yeah, I? Yeah, well, hey, I it's okay. Social those. Security is very exciting stuff. Oh, man, I just... <laughs> but to, to, to a point that Mike was making earlier is that that C, the municipal interest is, is included in provisional income, that's going to be a very attractive choice for, for it being not correct because we're so conditioned to say that municipal bond interest is tax-free. Uh, and so that's a great uh, kind of trap door sitting there that, that, that Mike put into the, uh, to the question. Yeah, exactly. So don't get fooled. Social Security, 50% of it is included in provisional income, and municipal bonds is as well. All right, guys, rounding things off with our tour of the six major topics. Uh, final one on the list here is estate. It's kind of ironic that we're finishing with death. <laughs> yeah, the big the big finale. <laughs> big finale. And then, well, good luck, everybody. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the world's a stage. <laughs> uh, so Jess has died, unfortunately. Sorry, Jess. Uh, with ownership interest in the assets uh, below, which assets will pass through to probate? Uh, she has a residence that is joint uh, ownership rights of survivorship, traditional IRA with her spouse as a beneficiary, uh, a vacation cottage that's owned under community property, and a savings account fee simple with payable on death to her son. So 
Basically, her son's the beneficiary on her savings account. So which of these assets will pass through to probate court? So when I when I think about this, uh, whenever I see any probate question, I always ask myself, you know, what's the purpose of probate? To generate fees for lawyers. <laughs> <laughs> well, that might be true. It's part of the uh, attorney retirement act. Yes. Um, yeah. <laughs> The, the real answer of why uh, probate exists at its most simple form is figuring out whose stuff belongs to, you know, who gets the stuff when there isn't any clear indication of who it goes to. Um, so generally with with uh, probate questions, if there's a clear beneficiary on it, I usually will just write that answer off. So the traditional IRA with her spouse is the Benny and her savings account with payable on death to the son both of those, I feel, are just super easy to just cross off. Those are not going to probate. They have a clearly defined beneficiary on them. Yeah, as long as you pick up on the fact that uh, uh, for, for banking products, a, a POD, uh, and for security uh, security accounts, TOD, right. transfer yes. on death, those are both forms of beneficiary designation. Right. You know, beneficiary is is really for retirement accounts and then TOD and POD are more are effectively the same thing. It's just, you know, we use different words to describe them. Yeah. Now, without that, though, and this is this is a wrinkle in this question, putting mm-hmm. fee simple in there. If that if it stopped right there, that thing's going through probate. Right. Right. You know, because there's no there's no clear indication of where that account is, who that belongs to. So it needs to go through probate to, uh, you know, figure out who that belongs to. Mm-hmm. So now we're left with the two more complicated ones, the her home that was joint ownership and the vacation home that's community property. So let's take a look at, at her home first. Um, now. Houses are usually one of the biggest things to go through probate, but with this scenario, is this home going to go to probate court with how it's set up currently as a joint uh, rights of survivorship? It will not. It, um, it's going to pass just by law. Um, there's three ways uh, that, that property or transfer that, that can bypass probate. One is just by law, and that's all this co-ownership categories, joint tenants with rights of survivorship, uh, uh, joint tenancy with a, with a, a non-spouse person, but also tenancy by entirety with the spouse. All of those jo- joint forms by operation of law bypass probate. Right. And if you think about it, that sort of kind of falls under the same category of the beneficiary on an account in that we know who this property is going to, who this property belongs to at the time of death of one of the owners, you know, joint rights of survivorship, like break what that actually is saying down rights of survivorship. You have the right to this property if you are the surviving surviving member. Yep. So and the POD uh, is is under another big category, like Jerry said, where there's beneficiaries, those pass by contract, right? And and then the last category we didn't include in this uh, would be by trust. The other things that are just in the will and and not stated as Jerry as Jerry has pointed out, that's going to run through uh, through probate. Yep. So whenever you're talking about probate court, first look to see is there documentation in place clearly defining 
where those assets should go on death. If there isn't, that is your clue that those assets are going to go to probate court. And that's what we have here with the vacation cottage. It's a community property vacation cottage. So it's not necessary. We don't necessarily know, you know, who that's going to. So that is going to have to go through probate. Yeah. And that, uh, again, estate planning is one of those intimidating topics for most of us that, that aren't attorneys and don't deal with this on a daily basis. So always seek first to, to understand or to grab the low hanging fruit, the most basic applications. And that's why probate is such a good exam topic. Know right. the basics of probate and you can grab those, uh, those points. This question you might see just like this, where it's, it only lists the, the uh, form of ownership. Uh, they might make it a little harder by having numbers. And some of the numbers uh, would pass through probate, uh, but also be part of the gross estate. So you have to RTFQ, and are they testing on the probate estate or the gross estate? Mm-hmm. And, and you'll have to maybe do some quick, quick math with that. But this is just very basics. Yeah. And going a bit deeper into that vacation cottage, because I'm sure people are going to have questions on this. Uh, and it also is a way that this that can trip people up is, you know, some people might think it's like, oh, well, she, you know, has this vacation cottage, most likely with her husband, community property. You know, it's community property. When 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 she dies, he, he gets half the value and then he'll get the other half. Right. Like, why would that go to probate court if he you know, we know he's going to get it because it's not automatic like the other ones. Right. Tenancy by entirety, joint tenants with rights of survivorship, that's automatically going to that surviving uh, spouse, that survivor, not with community property. Each person is deemed to own one half. Right. And if you think about it, it uh, a more accurate description is half of the vacation cottage is going to probate, you know. The husband gets his half that he owns under community property, but the other half that was Jess's half, that's really what's up for debate here. And that's what's actually going to be going to the, the probate court. That's right. And, and, and another testing angle uh, with that in mind, one of the cool things about the community property is both halves of the community par- property will get a step up in basis. That's right. At the death of the uh, death of the first uh, spouse, the others do not. The other examples we have here, um, well, the uh, joint tenancy p- pieces, uh, only half of that we get half stepped of it. up. Yep. Yep. The fee simple would be eligible for that because the POD doesn't make that you know income in respect of a decedent. Uh, like the IRA would be, but those are, again, I tend, my, my lens with these questions is, okay, that's a nice setup. There's one I can get. What else might they ask with this kind of format? How else Mm -hmm. could you test that data, that, that information that's given? You just expand the pool questions you can answer. But I I think Mike, you made a great point with the three ways that the assets can pass without having to go through probate, which is the contract by law and by trust. And I think if people keep those straight and none of the answers fit into those buckets, then you've got your answer. Yeah. And and, and linking by contract, I liked Jerry's link with where there's beneficiaries named. Right. Um, You know, that's a good way to remember that. So life insurance. Right. Life insurance uh, with a named beneficiary is is not going to go through probate. 
But if the insured owns the policy or has any incidents of ownership in that policy at death, guess what? It's in the gross estate. (laughs) Yep. That's actually a really good point because I've seen that as be a very tricky question. Um, The CFP exam will ask with life insurance is, okay, there's a beneficiary. It's not going to probate because we know who the beneficiary is. But where the CFP board likes to trip people up is what if it's not um, the person who the life insurance is on that dies, but the person who owns the life insurance that dies. So I own a life insurance contract on Mike. Brendan is the beneficiary and I die. What happens then to that life insurance contract? Right. So that's going to have to end up going to, to probate. Um, because I'm the one who's dying and I own the contract. Mm-hmm. I'm not the actual you know, beneficiary in it. And that's where the CFP board can kind of trip you up if, you, if you're thinking about it from this beneficiary standpoint, is think about who's actually dying here. Is it, it the an actual, you know, truthfully a, a beneficiary situation where it's going to be clearly passed to someone? Yeah, just break it down. Don't panic and just break it down. Because you will have studied all of this. You know, yeah, and this, it, this, this, this is so hard when you're just thinking about it big picture. But by the time you get to test day, you have studied all of this. You've got a shot at every question. Definitely. And you just have to think. I think people do freeze and panic and just, just process it through, think, and you should be – again, even if you have – you have that panic moment. If you can whittle it down to a couple of answers and you're, you're down to a 50-50 shot, the odds of your passing improves dramatically. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And, and at some point, and, and, and I guess I want to talk about this because we're so close to the exam, at some point, you've got to trust the work. Yes. You have to trust the months and months that you've put into this and just know that that can be enough. It really can. If you've put the work into this, you will have stretches on this exam where you can't miss You just, you know, you're nailing every one of them, but then you're going to hit a stretch where you're not sure you get the, yes. and about the third one in a row that you're not sure right. on panics, your heart rate goes up and, and you, your breathing changes a little bit. Just relax, catch that. And then just chill out, just relax and keep moving and trust the work. So I, I knew a guy that, that used to write for the uh, FINRA exams, and, and he, he used to say, if I wanted to drop the pass level on any test, I would just make the first 10 questions of that test as hard as I possibly could because after that, people will just quit. And, and so it, it, they'll get so rattled that it will, by proxy, lower test scores. It's, it really is a psychological game. Yep. It, it, it comes down to being in the right headspace, um, you know, being confident in yourself and having that self-fulfilling prophecy. If you tell yourself that you're going to pass, you're going to pass. You know, make that prophecy come true. <laughs> all right. So that about does it for our question episode. I hope all our listeners, uh, you know, got some good pointers and got a lot out of this episode. Um you know, it's crunch time, so I'm sure everyone's studying really hard for the exam, and hopefully we can uh, help people out a little bit with it. Yeah, and if you still have questions, um, boy, use us. Get a hold of us. We're, we're happy to help you down the stretch here. 
Uh, so take advantage of, uh, of our accessibility. And, yep. um, you know, if just one of our regular listeners that maybe isn't sitting next month and you've got ideas for topics that you'd like for us to tackle uh, in, in the podcast, send them in. We're going to try to act on, on just about all of them that are sent in. Most of them are great ideas. Yeah, most and more interesting yeah. to us, right? Because then we get to talk about things that we know people want to hear. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I think we've promised a couple of people we are going to do something on bond duration. Uh, I know that gets asked a lot. It's another one of my favorites. <laughs> um, I think we have some we have some mini bites in in store for that. And yeah, dur- bond duration is some, is a topic that a lot of people have trouble with. So uh, that is definitely in the cooker. We're just uh, we want to do it right. So. Uh, we're gonna kind of polish it up before we release it. If you really want to see your topic tackled, then just you know send some beer, and that usually <laughs> assures. But uh, hold on, yeah. let's be more specific on that. No macro brews, no macro brews. So if it's something that comes in in quantities of thirty, uh, get something smaller. Uh, yeah, you guys can send uh, all the Zima to Brendan's yeah. office. Yeah, please yeah. do. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, excellent. Well, I think that just about does it for this episode. Uh, good luck to everyone sitting for the March exam, and we will see the rest of you next month for the next episode. You can do it. Hang in there. Steady on. RTFQ.